Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18 this morning. And uh, while you're turning there, let me as well just echo Nathan's words. Uh, thanks to uh, those who work with our I Praise, really in all of our children in the preschool ministry and student ministry. Uh, what a blessing. I didn't realize how much of a blessing those ministries are until I had kids myself. And uh, I get to hear the impact and I get to see the overflow of what comes out that you've poured in already. And I'm grateful for, personally, just as a, as a dad, I'm grateful for what you do, but also as a part of this church, grateful for how our church is strengthened because of those of you that serve in those areas of ministry. And so thank you for what you do. And parents as well, thank you for entrusting your kids to this ministry as well. And uh, I think you probably, like I do, are able to, to get a sense of what God's doing in their lives because you hear those same conversations as well whenever they get home. So thank you for, for uh, entrusting them to us as parents and as grandparents as well. Acts chapter 18 is where we are. We've been moving through the book of Acts for a while. This is about the, I think, either the 51st or 52nd message in this series. And so if you're just coming in the first time, the good news is, is th- th- this isn't a series like a soap opera. <laughs> Each one typically stands alone. So, so I think you'll be okay today. But uh, Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to start this morning, beginning in verse 1 here, just a little bit, looking at a message entitled Personal responsibility. For some reason, it seems like we live in a culture that has a difficult time taking responsibility. It's so easy to cast blame on the other person. And if you're a part of a family where you had a brother or a sister then you probably have been on the wrong end, the short end of that stick, where you got blamed for something you didn't do. But let's be honest, you probably got away with a few things as well, didn't you, by pa- passing blame on to you know, that brother or that sister. They pushed me, and I didn't start it, they pushed me. I didn't do it, they're the one who did it. And then as we get older, we kind of can blame the devil on all kinds of stuff and remove ourselves out from under responsibility. But it's so much easier to, to pass blame. And you, you probably remember years ago, the person from McDonald's that went through the drive through and got the hot cup of coffee. I hear those coffees are hot, at least from, from what I understand. And uh, took a drink of that coffee, spilled it all over him and sued McDonald's. You remember that story? It's so much easier for us to cast blame than it is to take responsibility. Well, my question is, why is it easy for us easier to blame someone else than it is just to take responsibility for our choices and for our words and for our actions and for our lives? Why is it just easier to cast blame and so difficult for us to take ownership and to own the words we speak, to own the things we do, to own the choices we make, and to own the lives that we live? Well, as we look in Scripture, we find that that there are numerous instances all the way through from beginning to end, obviously, of people who fell short in the area of personal responsibility. Made choices, they did things, they went directions they shouldn't have gone, and ultimately a lot of people suffered the consequences of that. Now when you look at personal responsibility, there are really kind of two aspects of it. There's that aspect where we can be held responsible, you know, we're held accountable. Yes, that certainly applies. You know, if you're in a car crash, for example, and you ram into another car because you're texting while you're driving, you're going to be held responsible. There's a personal responsibility that goes with it, and you're going to be held accountable. You're going to be held responsible. But then there's also that aspect of responsibility where for us, where it's not just that we are held responsible, but we have to demonstrate responsibility. We are held responsible because we do not demonstrate responsibility at times in our lives. And that's what I want us to focus on really this morning in this message as we look at Acts chapter 18 of how we demonstrate responsibility, why we need to demonstrate responsibility, and what it looks like as we move through these first 17 verses or so in Acts chapter 18. You may be wondering, why is this important? 
Why do we even need to look at this topic? Here's why it's important. Because if you and I do not demonstrate personal responsibility in the variety of areas of our lives, then we are going to suffer the consequences of it. And more often than not, somebody else is going to suffer the consequences as well. For me as a husband, if I don't demonstrate personal responsibility in the area of my marriage, then I'm going to suffer the consequences. My wife is going to suffer the consequences. My children are going to suffer the consequences. As a father, if I don't demonstrate personal responsibility... If I'm irresponsible, if I fall down on my, on my, my end of the deal, if I don't demonstrate that, then my kids are going to suffer as a result. In fact, they may end up growing up and becoming adults that bear the marks of my irresponsibility if I'm not careful. In the workplace, if I don't demonstrate personal responsibility, if you don't show that in the workplace, you just might not have a job next week. If you're irresponsible at the wrong time, in the wrong areas, in front of the wrong people, you may end up losing a job as a result. If we're irresponsible with finances... We're going to suffer the consequences. And so the list goes on and on and on. Wherever we, whatever intersects our lives, whatever issue intersects our lives, there we must be responsible personally. And we can't expect someone else to be responsible for us. We have to demonstrate that ourselves. Well, in Acts chapter 18 this morning, as we move through in a second, you're going to see two people that I believe as we trace their lives briefly this morning in the New Testament, we're going to see that they were people who showed personal responsibility. And the effects went on and on and on long after their lives would have ended. Well, let me catch you up to where we are in Acts chapter 18. Early in the book of Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul ends up making a dramatic decision where he yields his life to Christ. His life would be changed as a result of that. And early on, Paul would become the greatest missionary that this world has ever seen. Well, whenever we read the book of Acts, we see that Paul took three journeys, three trips, the three missionary journeys, if you want to call them that. The first one, he planted a lot of churches around that area. He traveled somewhat out of the the, the land of Israel, but he primarily planted churches where he went. Well, the second missionary journey that he took, he revisited those churches. And when he sent out, he took a fellow with him by the name of Silas. So it's Paul and Silas. Well, early on in that journey, in a city called Lystra, he encountered a person by the name of Timothy, First and Second Timothy, that's that Timothy, and he would ultimately lead Timothy to Christ, and Timothy would join Paul and Silas, so there are three of them traveling. Well, as they would travel that area, they would begin to visit the churches that they had planted, but however, God would close the door as they wanted to push up into northern Asia, modern-day Asia, God would close the door. And he would, through that closed door, lead them ultimately to other areas and open a wide open door for the gospel to Europe. Well, along the way, they'd pick up a fourth traveling companion. His name was Luke, and it's Luke that wrote the book of Acts. And as they begin to make their way ultimately down to a city called Troas, God leads them across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. Well, that Macedonia is modern-day Europe. And so the gospel would ultimately make it to Europe through Paul's efforts. Well, as they travel there, they begin to hit a lot of big cities. They go to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, Paul heals a man. God heals a man through him. And a mob scene ensues, and people want to run him out of town. They throw him into jail. They beat him in, in jail. And ultimately, he's escorted out of town. They ultimately make their way to a city called Berea. And in Berea, they experience much the same People run them out of town. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear about Jesus. Ultimately, they travel through some other cities, but they make their way to Athens. Athens, Greece. It was the leading cultural center of the day, the leading philosophical center of the day. And as they go to Athens, what Paul encounters there are a bunch of people just don't care. And he talks about Jesus, and he talks about the resurrection. And he's there in the center of the world for philosophy and for new thought. And he's preaching Jesus Christ. And the people just don't care. They mock him. They ridicule him. And ultimately, he leaves, as we'll see in a little bit, more than likely discouraged and beat down. 
Well, he comes then to the city called Corinth. And it's in Corinth that we pick up this morning in chapter 18. It's about a two-day journey from Athens to Corinth, 53 miles Paul would travel. And when he gets to Corinth, he is not in a small city. He is in a city that politically was the, was the, the political leader of the world in the first century. When he gets to Corinth, he encounters lostness, people who need to hear the gospel. Now let me just tell you something about Corinth. Corinth was a port city. It was a city of great affluence. People there were extremely wealthy. And the way it was situated was that it was on a little narrow three and a half mile strip of land. It was called an isthmus. You might remember that back when you were in school. I hadn't heard it since I was back in school. Isthmus. I-S-T-H-M-U-S. Isthmus. <laughs> that was a pretty good spelling bee moment for me. Sorry. And so... And so Corinth is located on this it's a little three-and-a-half-mile strip of land. And the way it's situated, you can check this out in your exciting map at the back of your Bible when you go to lunch today. Break it out when you get to Papa's, I guess. That will impress the waitresses that come and wait on your table. You're reading your Bible map. But if you could look at your Bible map, here's what you'd find. You'd find Greece. You'd find northern Greece and southern Greece. And on that little narrow three-and-a-half-mile strip of land, that's where Corinth is. In fact, it was so important. It was such a commercial center. <laughs> this is just crazy. But history bears witness that they had a system, it was an early railroad system of logs. And people with the smaller ships that would come through that area, if they wanted to move from the Aegean Sea to the Adriatic Sea, they could put these smaller ships on these wooden logs and drag them three and a half miles through the city of Corinth, from the Aegean to the Adriatic. Anyone traveling from northern Greece to southern Greece couldn't get there without going through Corinth. And so it was a strategic city. And it's this 53-mile journey that Paul makes over two days by foot, more than likely, to get there. And the people that are there are people that need to hear the gospel. Did I mention to you that it was also the leading city of the world in regards to wickedness? It was known for its sin. They even had a verb to Corinthianize, meant to be engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage. A verb named after their city. I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm sure there have been tablets uncovered by archaeologists that say what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. <laughs> it was that kind of a town. And so Paul comes here, and he comes here with the gospel. When he gets to Corinth, however, what we have to understand is that he more than likely is at the lowest point of his ministry to that point. We have to remember in Philippi, there was a riot. He's thrown in prison, and he's escorted out of town. In Thessalonica, there's a mob scene that ensues, forced to leave the city. Berea, forced to leave the city. Athens, nobody cares what he's talking about. Mock him, ridicule him. He's not forced to leave, but he leaves to go to Corinth. So when he gets to Corinth, what we have to understand is that Paul is at a very low point in his ministry. You say, I don't understand that. Well, just flip over with me real quick. Hold your spot in Acts 18 because we'll get there in a moment. But look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You say, why are we going to 1 Corinthians? Here's why this is important because in 1 Corinthians, Paul obviously is writing this letter to the Christians in Corinth, right? And he's writing this letter about four years after he visited there. And so when we open the pages of 1 Corinthians, you are reading a letter written to the people that Paul's going to be meeting in Acts chapter 18, and it's written four years later to this early church. 
He describes in 1 Corinthians 2 what the condition of his life was when he got to Corinth in Acts 18. Listen to what he writes, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul says, when I came to you guys four years ago, I came to you in fear and in weakness and in trembling. It, it, was, a, it was an arduous journey that he had taken already through, through these cities. And when he got to Corinth, what he would find was, was that God would give him a breath of fresh air. God would give him encouragement. Let me, let me just stop for a moment. I didn't say this in the first service, but let me just say it here. That if you're in the midst of a difficulty this morning, if you're in the midst of a trial, but you are faithful to God and you are walking with God and you are consistent, consistently staying close to him, what you'll find is, is that God will give you exactly what you need at exactly the right time. He'll put people in your path. He'll bring things that you could have never seen that he orchestrates just for the purpose of giving you encouragement. It's because he loves you so greatly. It's because he's for you, Christian, not against you. And he will do whatever it takes to make sure that even in the midst of difficulties and dark days, yes, your faith will be tested, but he will provide for you what is needed. And here's what he does for Paul. Paul gets to this city. He's not going to find a lot of churches. He's not going to find some, some uh, TV preacher on TV that's going to you know, be able to encourage him. He can't dial up 91.9 or 88.1 and listen to Christian. He doesn't have anything to lean on. He is all alone in the city of Corinth. And here's what's going to happen. God is going to reunite him with, in just a second we'll see, with Silas and with Timothy. God is going to enable and he's going to draw to himself people in Corinth that will respond to the gospel, that will come to Christ. But also what God's going to do is he's going to bring into Paul's life a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And it's through this couple, in just a moment, we're going to trace them through the New Testament. We're going to see that God gives Paul not only a burst of, of encouragement, but he also sets an example for us of what personal responsibility looks like. And so pick up with me in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. We'll move through this passage quickly. I'll give you a principle to hang on to, and then we'll begin to trace it through. All right, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, after these things, Paul, he, Paul, left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Well, he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. All right, so here's what happens. We have to kind of track this just a little bit. In the city of Rome, there was a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. More than likely, we don't know when, but more than likely, they were already Christians at this time. They're living in Rome, and in around the year 49 or 50 AD, the emperor at that time, Claudius, he passed a decree that Jews had to leave the city of Rome. Now, he did that more than likely because Jews were at such, uh, they were at such odds with Christians in the, in the, in the Roman Empire, he forced the Jews to leave. And so, because Priscilla and Aquila were Jews by heritage, they were forced to leave the city of Rome. And so they travel, ultimately, to Corinth. We don't know how long they've been there, but they must have been fairly wealthy as tent makers because they were able to set up shop there. The Bible tells us already that they had a place to stay because Paul began to live with them. 
And so we begin to see this couple take shape. Priscilla and Aquila, they are tent makers. They are from the city of Rome. They have been exiled out under persecution because of their Jewish heritage. They are believers, and now they've given housing to the greatest missionary that we read of in all of history, the Apostle Paul. All right, verse 4. It says, And he, Paul, was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So what Paul is doing here, he's basically showing those that rejected his message that you're responsible for your own choices. Shaking out his garments was a New Testament thing, you know, just kind of a, a biblical thing that showed that his hands were clean, he was done. Don't recommend you trying that in front of your boss when you get to work and he tells you you can have your, you know, I shake out my garments upon you. You know, probably won't work too well, but in the first century, it would have been clear. Paul was saying, I've done what I can. Blood's on your own head. You're responsible for your choices. I have been responsible to deliver the truth. You've got to be responsible to respond to it. All right, so look at verse, uh, look at verse 7. It says, but... Uh, or then, then he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. <laughs> so he didn't have far to go. Paul goes right next door to this man who worships God. His name is Titus Justice. It says in verse 8 that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So here's what God does. He brings Timothy and Silas back into Paul's life, He introduces Paul to this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and he enables Paul to see many people respond to the gospel. Boy, you talk about a breath of fresh air. When you've been preaching to people that want nothing to do with what you're having to say, and then all of a sudden you're preaching to a group of people that say, that's exactly right. Where do we sign up to follow Jesus? This would have been a huge encouragement to Paul. And so God is at work here, and he's working in dramatic ways. Verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul would stay in this city, in the city of Corinth, for a year and a half, 18 months. Paul would stay there in this city. And he had preached the gospel and he would teach them the word of God. And he would help them to hopefully have everything they needed to grow deep in their walks with God. Well, verse 12 tells us that there was some opposition, again, because the gospel message is polarizing. It still is today. It says, but while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's the region where Corinth was located, it says the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul. They brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. (laughs) He sounds like a real warm, fuzzy guy, doesn't he? You know, this leader, this Roman leader is basically telling Jews, this does not, this doesn't involve me. Verse 15, but if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. They all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. And they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Now, interestingly, you don't have to turn there. 
But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, just listen, Paul, when he writes the Corinthians four years later, here's how he begins the letter. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. <laughs> you know, apparently, if this is the same fella, that Sosthenes that was taken out and just beaten by the Jews ultimately came to Christ. And he becomes one who partners with Paul within four years. So here's what we're going to do. From now on, we're not going to offer invitations at the end of the messages on Sundays. We're just going to come out and we're going to beat you <laughs> until you come to Jesus. And that'll be your testimony. You know, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once had clear complexion and then I got all bruised up and I came to you. I don't know. We can write songs about that. So interesting. You know, Sosthenes, apparently same person, would come to Christ. So God is working dramatically. I mean, the synagogue just lost their leader because he followed Jesus along with his whole, whole, his whole household already. Crispus did that in chapter, in verse 8. Now you got a new synagogue leader, Sosthenes. They beat him and ultimately he comes to Christ. So God's working through every different, every different variety of circumstances, as you can imagine. But yet there was opposition. And so let's jump back. I hope I haven't lost you, but let's just jump back for a second and trace this couple early in chapter 18 named Priscilla and Aquila because they're important. What does verse 3 tell us? Let me remind you again. They had fled under religious persecution as believers, and they came to Corinth. They were more than likely wealthy. They were tent makers, as was Paul. And immediately, it seems, when Paul arrived in the city of Corinth, somehow God orchestrated circumstances where they met, and they decided, we're going to put our businesses together. And by the way, Paul, you can live with us. As we move further in chapter 18, look over to verse 18. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Remember, Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half. It says in verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, and he put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul is there for a year and a half. When it's time to leave, he says, hey, listen, you two, you're going to go with me. Look at what it says in verse 19. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He himself entered the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. And so they partner with Paul in his ministry. They didn't just take him in in his time of need, but they begin to partner with him in spreading the gospel. Look over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want you to notice something here. And I'll try to move slow so I don't lose you, but 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Remember, Paul wrote this letter four years later. Let's see where they are within four years. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look down in verse 19. It says in verse 19, The churches of Asia greet you, Paul says to these Corinthians four years later. Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And so now we find that this couple has a church that is meeting in their house more than likely, that letter to the Corinthians was written from Ephesus. And so whenever Paul left them there, more than likely, at some point, a church began. And their house was the meeting place. Well, eventually, as time would move forward, they would make their way back to the city of Rome from which they had come. And so look back, if you will, one book to the last chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 16, and I promise you we're going somewhere with this. Acts, uh, Romans chapter 16. 
Paul now writes to the church in Rome. Look at what it says in chapter 16 there, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes to this church in Rome. He says, greet Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. All right, so now they're not in Corinth. They're not in Ephesus. Now they're back in Rome. He says, greet Prisca, Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And then he shares a little bit. He says, verse 4, who for my life risked their own necks. To whom not only do I give thanks, listen to this, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Verse 5, also greet the church that is in their house. So here's what we're beginning to learn about this couple. In Corinth, they take in a beat-down missionary. In Ephesus, they plant a church and allow it to meet in their house. In Rome, they're allowing a church again to meet in, the, in their own house. Paul gives testimony of them, and he said it was for him that they risked their own necks. And so these are not just casual Christians that just follow Christ when it's convenient. They followed Christ when it could have cost them their very lives. And Paul even says there, he even says in testimony of them, again in Romans 16 verse 4, he says, not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. This man, Paul, had traveled all over that part of the world. And he says, for these two people, Priscilla and Aquila, for these two people, all the churches of the Gentiles should give thanks. What if it was said of you, what if, uh, what if the greatest, let's say Billy Graham in his prime, what if he stood up and on some telecast that went nationwide into all the countries of the world, what if he said, and I'd just like to take a moment to thank, and he said your name, because all of the churches of America are indebted to them. That's what Paul's saying. These people, Priscilla and Aquila, that if you ask most church members and people who come to church weekly, do you know who Priscilla and Aquila are? Most people would draw a blank stare. I, I don't know. I've heard of them, but I don't know who they are. Paul says all the churches of the Gentiles should be indebted to them for gratitude for what they've done. And they did it because they were responsible with the life that God had given them. Here's the principle. That growth in relationship with Christ results in personal responsibility. As we grow in relationship with Christ, the result of our growth in Jesus, the deeper we go, the more responsible we become. Christians in the first century were known for their love for the poor, for the outcast. In fact, whenever you read historical documents of the first century and the trials and the tribulations that went on, many times it would be the Christians that stood out as those who gave even of the little that they had for the benefit of others. Why? Because growth in Christ results in personal responsibility. We get it the deeper we grow. And so the workplace should be filled with believers who, because of their growth in Christ, are responsible in the workplace. Families should be led by parents that because of their growth in Jesus Christ, they are leading their families. Husbands are leading their families responsibly. They're not going to places that they may have used to go on. They're not doing the things they used to do. They have grown up in Christ. They have, they have, have, have uh, uh, chosen to, to live a life that honors Jesus Christ starting in the home. 
The way we handle our finances, for example, is impacted when we grow in relationship with Christ. Everything changes. We, as a result of our growth, become responsible people in the kingdom of God. And where there is irresponsibility, listen, there is a, is a warning that growth has been impeded in our relationship with Christ to some degree. Aquila and Priscilla did not matter where they lived. They were not bound to one place. Did not matter that they could have comfortably retired as tent makers. They already had a house to live in. They had everything more than likely set. They were able to travel wherever God led. They were able to uproot and to move. They probably had a life of comfort if they wanted to. And yet they instead chose to give up the comforts. They chose to give on the benefit to the benefit of another. They chose to even risk their own lives. And as a result of them, the gospel spread. And they're an example that growth in our relationship with Christ results in personal responsibility. So let's just look at some of the areas of life today. Let's start with marriage. Husbands, wives, how responsible are you within your marriage? If you claim to be a follower of Christ... The Holy Spirit indwells you and He's already given you everything needed for godliness and He promises to walk with you. Then how responsible are you in the area of marriage? Are you leading your families? Husbands, are you doing everything that you can to ensure that one day your wives will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You're the person that God has put in closest proximity to her that will help to sharpen her. Did you know, someone said this in our premarital counseling whenever Susie and I first got married, and it stuck with me ever since, and I've stolen it, and I use it when I do premarital, that your spouse, if you're married, your spouse is God's heavenly sandpaper. (laughs) Yep. And the way he will mold and shape you into the image of Christ as a believer will primarily be through the instrument of your spouse. And those areas such as impatience that need to go and God's wanting to teach you about patience, then the way he's going to teach that more often than not, I believe, is through the one who is closest to you, that's your spouse. The ones, that, those areas of life that you need to grow in, if you're married, then God is going to use your spouse to help to mold and to shape you and to help conform you into the image of Christ. He's going to help you to understand what goodness looks like. He's going to help you to, to uh, come to the place to where you grow deeply in your relationship with God. And he's going to use your spouse to help to mold and shape you. And so how responsible are you in your marriage? What about as parents? We just had a whole host of, of children up here singing. They didn't even count them. I don't know. I'm guessing 40. I know some of you probably did. Guessing probably 40 kids that were up here singing. Parents, how responsible are you to pour into your kids? And if your kids arrive 20 years from today to the place where you aren't currently, will you be happy for them or will your heart be broken? If they arrive 20 years from now to the place where you are today, will you be happy for them or will your heart be broken? You are responsible. I am responsible as parents to show to our children what the life of Christ looks like. Are we perfect? No, far from it. But can we strap it up and can we pick ourselves up and can we demonstrate Jesus Christ to them? Demonstrate what the Christian life looks like. Why? Because we are responsible to do that. What about the area of your heart? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all things, guard your heart. Above all things, guard your heart. For from it flows the wellsprings of life. I still remember my wife Susie sending that verse to me in an email before we were married. 
It's probably her favorite verse. Above all things, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. If you lose your heart, you lose your life. If you lose your heart, you lose everything. If your heart gets away from you, you lose infinitely more than you can ever even imagine. So it says guard your heart. In the Hebrew, it means above all guarding, guard your heart. You put passwords on your computer. We have passcodes for our checking accounts. Above even that, guard our heart. We put locks on our door and security systems in our cars. Even above all that, we must guard our heart. We guard those things that are precious to us. We guard them with intensity. But the Bible says, above all things, above all guarding, guard your heart. Why? For from it flows the wellsprings of life. And so how responsible are you to guard your heart today? Are you guarding what gets into it? Are you guarding the places where you go? Are you guarding the influencers in your life? Because those who influence you... They're called influencers for a reason because you will become a product of those who influence you. And if we're not being poured into by those who walk with God and who have a heart, who run hard after God, then we're going to be, ultimately, if we're influenced by the world, we're going to become just like the world. And we're responsible. Growth in Christ results in personal responsibility. What about finances? How responsible are we in the area of finances? Priscilla and Aquila gave out of their own good. They opened up their home. More than likely, perhaps, even shared of their own vocational income for the benefit of Paul, very possibly. And yet today we look at the work going on in this world and we look at the church in this country in which we live and here's what we tend to see is that there is a huge difference between the money we spend for ourselves and for those things that will never last and the money invested into the kingdom of God. I would have a sneaky suspicion that for many Christians, they spend more on their family pet than they do to help advance the missionary cause of the gospel across the the face of this globe. And where people are dying in hot countries that are closed closed access to the gospel today, regions, uh, countries where there are over 50 countries that are closed access to the gospel, from my understanding, where that's happening and missionaries are dying, we have no problem spending more money on our Netflix account or to feed Fido or to help keep a media package on our cell phone than we do to give so that the gospel can be heard by people who will bust hell wide open if they don't get access to it. That's irresponsibility. Growth in Christ results in personal responsibility where he owns everything, even the finances, not just the, we don't own just the the, the 10% or the 90%. God owns every ounce of it. God owns every penny of it. Every bit of it is his. And we're responsible to use it in a way that glorifies him. Does it mean we don't ever spend money on ourselves, things we enjoy? No, it doesn't mean that. But there is a balance issue in the lives of most believers today in that area because we're not responsible. And then last, what about your relationship with God? Paul would say, your blood is on your own head. I've shared the gospel. God has no grandkids. You're not getting to heaven because mom or dad were Christians. You have to make the choice yourself. And it's the same for us. And so where do you stand with God? That's a choice for which you are responsible, for which you are accountable. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and verse 2. Four years later, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Growth in Christ results in personal responsibility. And so in the areas of life, 
How then responsible are you? Let's pray. Lord, we've been reminded even this week in the media of the devastation that comes through the irresponsibility of even one or two people. Lord, our responsibility is personal, yes, but it is also corporate because when we're honest, more than just ourselves are impacted by our own lives. And where we choose not to be responsible, God, where we are immature in our relationship with you, where we do not grow deeply, and as a result of that, we never begin to think like you, we never begin to live the life of Christ, others will be impacted as a result. Lord, what we reap, we sow. It's not punishment, it's just simple biblical principle. And Father, we pray today that we would understand the implications of a message like this, that being responsible by growing deep in our relationship with you can protect us from a load of heartache. But at the same time, as Priscilla and Aquila embody for us, God, lives that are lived responsibly, where the cross is the central component of life, so much can be accomplished. And so, Lord, I pray across the board for those of us here today that we would take inventory of our lives and to see where we are being irresponsible, that we would understand the need to spend time with you daily in your word, in prayer, growing, letting you change and mold and shape us. For through that, Lord, not only comes joy and fulfillment and and ministry, but, Lord, also responsibility. We become responsible as we grow. So, Father, give us healthy families, healthy marriages. Help us to play a part in seeing the gospel spread locally and across the world. Help us to see fruit that comes out of the areas of our lives, to be responsible citizens and workers in every area because we grow deeply with you. God, for those today that don't know you, Lord, doing better won't fix them. Lord, what they need is a Savior. Lord, the message of the gospel that Paul proclaimed holds true today, that Jesus, God himself, came and he died and he rose so that any person who turns from sin and repents, accepting Christ as Savior and as Lord, can be saved, can be forgiven, can be made right, can be a part of your family. And so lead those today who don't know you to make that choice, even right where they sit this morning. Bless now these decisions, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.